All right, we're starting something different today for a few weeks. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Going to focus on one verse here, Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is wisdom. It is your revelation. And by it, we are made wise unto salvation. By it, you teach us and transform us. We pray, God, that you would teach us today, that you would change our minds and our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Big questions. I've always been a big question guy. Uh, Not always a big answer guy. Um, Always had more questions than answers. But as a little kid, always asked questions, and the big questions always stuck with me. Some of you know this. I used to ask my parents, why do we live? Why do we exist? Why is there pain and suffering? Why don't I have any friends? That's answerable, actually. That's not a mystery. But like, I had all these questions, like, like, why? What is the purpose? And life is filled with these kinds of questions. Every culture winds up asking a lot of the same questions. And the big questions of life ultimately leave you haunted or make you whole. Sort of depends on the answers that you get. At least it largely depends on that. And today we're going to kick off this series called Q&A. It's not going to be where you ask me questions and I answer. Q&A about questions and answers, but instead of just talking about the big questions that people ask in the world, which is important for us to interact with, and we try to do that throughout our teaching ministries here at Redeemer, we want to focus on the heavy, weighty questions that are asked in the Bible, like the question Cain asks here, even though he's asking it insincerely, it's coming from a place of real confusion. Am I my brother's keeper? So we're going to start with that today. Am I my brother's keeper? And we're going to look at other questions over the next coming weeks. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why would God care? Look at you all. Why would God care? I mean, if we're being honest, like why would God listen to me pray at all? Is there anything after death? And and many others. Questions that are in the Bible. Today, am I my brother's keeper? Here's the answer. It's real complex, so listen carefully. You are your brother's keeper. That's the answer. But I want to unpack that for us, okay? I think we need to unpack it. I've benefited from unpacking that this week. You are your brother's keeper. That's the point. That's the point that I want you to get today. But in order to understand this, we're going to look at this uh, in two ways. First, we're going to look at the story, right? The account of Cain and what went on. Then we're going to look at the question. We're going to dive into it. So first, the story, it starts in Genesis 4. In case you're unfamiliar, we're going to do a little run-through, right? It's a refresher for those of you that grew up in vacation Bible school where you had fun stories about, oh, look, Cain and Abel brothers, aren't they fun? Until one kills the other. It gets kind of dark pretty quick. All right, it's about two brothers. We see this in chapter 4, verse 2. These are two brothers who are the offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Now, this is before, right? This is before... uh, 
Abraham. This is before Moses. This is before Sinai. This is before Israel was formed. This is before the formation of, of the law and the covenants and all of that. This is early on, after sin had come into the world, but still very early on. We've got Cain and Abel, siblings. It says in verse 2, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Right? So, you know, Abel, uh, you know, tended to animals and Cain worked the fields. So here were two brothers. And in verses 3 through 5 of Genesis chapter 4, we see that they go to worship, which makes sense, right? Brothers do a lot of things together. And here they go to worship. This is a regular thing that they do. But listen to what happens. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Both go to worship, right? They're both going they're doing what they believe is the right thing, and by all outward appearances, they're doing the right thing. They're going to worship the Creator. But Abel's worship and sacrifice is accepted by God, and Cain's is rejected by God. Why? Lots of commentary, lots of ink spilled on, on why. And we could say a lot, but in order to tell the story and move this along, let's make sure we just clarify what we know for certain. The real problem here, and we know this from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the reason God accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's was because Abel had faith and Cain did not. Abel actually believed, means he was reconciled to God through faith, justified just like Abraham. He, he loved the Lord. He was offering a sincere form of worship, stemming from faith and obedience to God, Cain's Offering was not stemming from faith. He did not believe. He was doing it with wrong motives for wrong reasons. It's not just, oh, God's picky and he liked Abel and he didn't like Cain. He's not just playing favorites. Cain did not worship the Lord, whereas Abel actually did. So Cain's false worship was rejected. Now, Cain is experiencing what you would expect someone to experience in this situation once he becomes aware that God rejected it, he's confused. The confusion turns to bitterness. It turns to anger. His face, his countenance drops. So Cain is in a bad place. He's in a bad way. And God kindly warns him. Even though Cain is not really a believer, he's not really a follower, he isn't with the Lord, God doesn't just cast him aside and forget about him. He still speaks to him. And in fact, here he's giving him a warning because he sees that Cain is in danger of things getting even worse for him. So he warns him in verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So here's God being very kind. He reaches out to an unbelieving, hypocritical, religious man, essentially. And he says, why are you mad? You mad at me for not accepting your worship? Why are you mad at me? You're the one that doesn't believe. You see, he says, you're in danger. 
If you do the right thing, you know that you will be accepted. If you do the right thing, you know your countenance will be lifted. And the right thing here, clearly, is to repent of sin and unbelief and turn to the Lord. This is why he says sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. That sin is going to get you. You better master it. You better put it to death. You better repent. That's the idea. So God is giving him another opportunity to repent and to to be reconciled. It's It's a beautiful, scary warning. Do what's right. You'll be accepted. Repent, believe, you'll you'll be accepted. But it doesn't go well. Um, Cain does not address the sin crouching at his door. He lets it in. And it says in verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He killed his brother out of Greed, I don't know, jealousy, perhaps, embarrassment, shame. He killed his brother in his unrighteous anger. And God comes and speaks to him again. And this is where the question that we're going to consider today arises. In verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? By the way, God knows we're... Abel is. He's not, he's not confused, right? He's not asking to be informed. He's putting pressure on Cain. God does that. He will sometimes confront you with your sin, let you feel the weight of what you have done so that you see the grace and the mercy that you need. So he says, where is Abel? He puts pressure on Cain asking this question, and Cain lies. I don't know. <laughs> which is what we would all do. I don't know. All of our kids do that. Who, who made the mess? I don't know who made the mess in the kitchen. I certainly wouldn't do it. So like we all know, like this is what we do. We get caught, we start lying, and then he got defensive. He goes, I don't know. What, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother? Like... Now we're going to come back. We're going to spend time on this because although he's being defensive, this is something that he has really thought about. Um, his conclusion is in there. I'm not my brother's keeper. You see, you don't get to the place where you kill somebody until you figured out what you do not owe them. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't owe my brother anything. I'm not his keeper. So we're going to come back to that. So this is where Cain's question comes in. So he asks this question. So now God knows what's going on. He's confronted Cain, and now Cain is cursed by God. Cursed by God. This is even somewhat different than what Adam and Eve experienced because what Adam and Eve experienced the effects of a curse, it's the serpent who was directly cursed. And here Cain is being directly cursed. And God says in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is hard, right? Sounds harsh. You are cursed. First of all, the most terrifying words to ever hear from God. You are cursed. It's saying you are damned in a sense, at least relatively. You are cursed. 
And so the thing that you are good at, the thing that you love, your whole vocation and interest in farming, right, in horticulture, in in harvesting, you're not going to do that anymore because every attempt that you make towards making this a reality, right, your planting is never going to yield a harvest again. You're cursed. The land is cursed for you. And you got to get out. You're done. You're going out from Eden. You're going to wander now. You're going to have to go set up shop somewhere else. You're expelled from your community that you know, your culture that you've been a part of, and you're no longer going to be able to do the thing that you love. And you think like, whew, that's kind of harsh, God. I thought about that. I thought that for a moment, like, man, that seems pretty harsh until I realized what should have happened to him. He killed his brother. He killed an innocent man. God demonstrates in Genesis 9, Romans 13, that that capital punishment is an appropriate form of punishment for the murder of the innocent. That the government bears that authority. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. Kill Cain. He doesn't have Cain struck down. Instead, he says, "No, I'm going to let you live, but you're not going. But you're, you're going to suffer the consequence. You're going to experience a curse here." Now, what's interesting is that Cain understands the significance of God's kindness here, in that it's going to make his life very uncomfortable. He's very afraid. He is like, well, God's sparing my life, but my life is going to be totally different. There's going to be a hardship to it that I wasn't prepared for. And so what does Cain say? His fear comes out in verses 13 and 14. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and I'm going to wander the earth. And whoever finds me is going to kill me. He understands like, I'm going to have a reputation. Everybody's going to know what I did. This is the first recorded murder, right, in Scripture. Cain killed an innocent person, a righteous person, a lover of the Lord. And people are going to know, and he knows what he deserves. That's why he says, like, listen, people are going to want to put me down. They're going to find out, and they're going to want to put me down. He is afraid. And so God gives Cain a mark, the mark of Cain. Now, if you try to understand the Bible and interpretation and theology by using things like Reddit, you're going to hear theories like, well, the mark of Cain is uh, lycanthropy. It's being a werewolf. And you get around all kinds of stupid things. So don't go to Reddit to look for understandings of Scripture or past. Don't do that. Use your Bible, first and foremost, and find reputable biblical scholars that will help you. The mark of Cain is not lycanthropy, right? It's not werewolfism. It's not a thing. Well, it might be a thing, but it's not here. Anyway, the point is... (laughs) The, the, the point is, he marks Cain, and this mark is grace. It is a grace. It is a kindness. He's afraid he's going to be killed as soon as he starts wandering off and meeting other people. And in verse 15, God says, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So God says, no, I won't let that happen. I'll protect you. That's a kindness. That's mercy he doesn't deserve. 
He says, no, this is how God is so kind. He's like, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually protect you. I'm going to mark you in such a way that people will know who you are when they see you, but they will also know the consequences of coming against you. They will know that if they take vengeance on you for what you did, that they will experience my judgment. That is a kindness. Boy, that's, you can't buy that kind of protection. Supernatural, divine protection for the rest of your life. And consider this. You read the story of, of, of Cain and his descendants. I mean, Cain established a city. He's married, starts to have kids. His family starts to grow. And his descendants become ranchers and musicians and blacksmiths. In fact, if you go on to read it, it's like they, they aren't just musicians. His descendants are creating musical instruments to play. They're inventing them. They were smelters and blacksmiths. They were creating weapons and instruments out of all kinds of metals. I mean, they flourished in, in many ways, like Cain's family, his descendants flourished when God could have just snuffed his life out. He still allowed him to be fruitful and multiply, even though he worked against that very principle by murdering his brother. He allowed them to create culture, a mix of good and bad. It's amazing. So that's the story. That's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain murdering his brother, being sent off, given a mark to protect him. I know, you know, you all want to know, what's the mark? What's the mark? Here's the thing. The Bible tells us nothing about the mark. We don't know what it is. So you can relax, chill. We don't know what the mark is. People that spend all this time, well, the mark was probably like a numerical thing. We don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't say. Whatever it was, it identified Cain and it clarified God's message. Some people believe it's just the ministry of the word, uh, like a sort of a prophetic thing. Other people think it's an actual mark. I like to think it's a cool looking mark right on his head, but that's me. Whatever. We don't know. doesn't matter. So let's get to the question. This is the issue. This is what we want to talk about. Cain asks this question, am I my brother's keeper? Now in that question, in that question is an implicit objection because we already know what he thinks the answer is. This is, I'm not. So there's an objection that he's making. And his objection is what? I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm responsible for myself, and I'm only responsible for myself. I am only responsible for myself and my actions, and all I've got to sort of, sort of basically take care of me and not worry about anybody else. And listen, there are, there are lots of people, influential sort of figures on the internet these days, mostly men, who are pushing this kind of an idea. You are only responsible for yourself. It is a pagan, I would say, satanic philosophy. You are not only responsible for yourself. So let's address this objection. I'm only responsible for myself. Okay, yes, first of all, you are responsible for yourself. We are all responsible for ourselves. But you know what that means, right? If you're responsible for yourself, it means you're responsible for your thoughts, your attitude, your actions. You're responsible for your affections. It means that you, are, you have to do the right thing. And if you do the wrong thing, it need, means you need to repent and make restitution. Cain ain't doing any of these things. Okay, he's not doing the right thing. He's not repenting. He's not taking responsibility for himself. Oftentimes, the people that are saying, I ain't got time to worry about anybody else. I only got to worry about me are not doing what's right anyways. Secondly, if you think you are only responsible for yourself, you are wrong because you are exalting yourself above everyone else, including God. You are exalting yourself. You are dismissing other people, and you are ignoring God. You are your brother's keeper. That's a specific example, right? You are your sister's keeper. 
We are the keepers of one another. And scripture gives us a ton of examples of this, right? A lot of examples where we can see, like, yeah, we, we should be caring for each other, that it is a responsibility given to us by God. Think of the summation of God's law in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's the great commandment? Something that they debated a lot at the time. And Jesus answers by giving the two greatest commandments. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He won't stop there. He says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, am I called? Am I responsible to? Am I commanded to love other people? And what does it mean to love? It doesn't just mean to like. It doesn't just mean to think fondly of. It means to care for. Yes, to have affection for, but to sacrifice for, to seek their good, to seek their flourishing. We are our brother's keepers. Or just think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the second table, right? The first table, one through four, dealing with our relationship to God. Second table, uh, you know, five through ten, dealing horizontally. And think of the sixth commandment and the ninth commandment, right? You, you shall not commit murder. And the ninth, uh, you shall not bear false witness. So don't kill people, don't murder, and don't lie. Now, those are stated in the negative, right? Don't do these things. But there's an implicit positive aspect of it. As well. In fact, Jesus makes it clear. Listen, uh, you've, you've, you've read in the law, do not murder, but I'm telling you, even if you hate somebody, you are murdering them in your heart. And the positive implication is, is like, yeah, you're not supposed to murder, but you are supposed to love, right? You are supposed to care. You are supposed to help. And one of the implicit aspects of this is you're supposed to defend. Don't murder, but if somebody is being hurt, being harmed, what are you supposed to do? Stand in and stand up. Do not bear false witness doesn't just mean don't lie. It means don't misrepresent other people. Don't bear false witness. It, it also means if somebody is being slandered or lied about, regardless of who they are, then it is your responsibility to stand up and speak the truth, to defend them. We don't like to do that, especially if the person that's being slandered is on the opposite side of an argument. But we're called to because we are our brother's keepers. We're called to protect each other. Micah 6, 8 I love Micah 6.8. Everybody loves Micah 6.8. What is good and, and what does the Lord require of us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. How are you going to do justice? This is the things that God wants from all of us, to do justice. That is relational. That is social. That is societal. You are your... Listen, if... If you are not your brother's keeper, then there is no command to do justice, to make sure that the right things are happening. To love mercy means you're invested in other people. Listen, think about those one another passages. I'm going to read them off fast. Don't try to write them down. Just some of the one another passages. Now think about it. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, what does scripture say? 
Romans 12.10, honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14.13, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15.7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Romans 15.14, instruct one another. Romans 16.16, greet one another. More, uh, when you come together, eat and wait for each other. Uh, Have equal concern for each other. In Galatians, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians says, Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. And on and on it goes. All of those commands are given because we are responsible for each other. You are not an island. You don't just exist by yourself, for yourself. But why? I mean, like, seeing the commands, that's pretty easy, right? You just start looking in Scripture, and you can see, like, oh, God makes all of these commands that are essentially reinforcing the responsibility to be my brother or my sister's keeper. But why? That's the question I always like asking. Why? The what? That's the easy part sometimes. But the why... And there are two basic reasons here. One, foundational. The most foundational reason that we are called to keep or care for each other is because of something called the Imago Dei. It's Latin. makes me sound smart. I'm not. I don't know Latin. I just know what that word means. Imago Dei means image of God. It means that we are made in the image of God, that all creatures, human creatures, are made in God's image Think about it like this. You are made in God's image, and every other human being is made in God's image, and this creates the foundational bond and connection between you and other human beings, not just your friends, not just people who dress like you, look like you, talk like you, think like you. The Imago Dei, you read about it in Genesis 1.27. It's very clear. God made them male and female in his image. Men, women, all of us reflect the divine image. This, this is the best argument against all forms of prejudice and racism. It's because we are, on the foundational level, the same. Despite all of the wonderful variations in culture and ethnicities and the way that we look and and the ways that we speak, all of this is wonderful. But despite all of that, we are fundamentally the same. We are God's creation. And as God's creation, we reflect his image. So yeah, we object to racism and prejudice of any kind because we are our brother's keeper, because we are connected. This is why we actually feel it. We mourn with those who mourn. And we rejoice with those who rejoice because we're connected. You guys know John Donne? He was a poet. And uh, you definitely, if you don't know John Donne, you know at least one of his poems. It's called No Man is an Island. I've already said it, right? It slips out. People say it all the time in our culture. No man is an island. And we kind of know what they mean. You don't exist on your own all alone. You are not totally disconnected. It's a great little poem, except it's not a poem, actually. Even though he was a famous poet. 17th century English poet. He was also a preacher. 
And this actually comes from one of his sermons. I'm just going to read you part of what's been pulled out to be called a poem. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. His point here is not like, don't ask for whom the bell tolls, like that you're going to die. His point is, listen, when somebody dies, it, it affects us all, right? Because we're all connected. This is coming from one of his sermons on this idea of, 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 of humanity and, and, and being part of, of God's creation, the image of God. We're made for community. That's the principle. That's the idea. Because we are made in God's image, who dwells eternally in community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are made for community. You're made for it, not just because of proximity. Some of us think like, oh, well, of course, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I live by people, so I, therefore I'm going to have to be in community. It's not about proximity. It's about purpose, right? It's about, it's about, your, like, what is Man's chief end. We, a lot of us know it here because we love the Reformed tradition uh, of the Protestant church, right? It's a part of our tradition. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But that's an easy thing to use as a sticker. It's, a, it's an easy refrain to, to recite and just gloss over the details of our lives. My purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You got to get specific about it. How? When? Because the vast majority of your glorifying God and enjoying him forever is going to happen in the context of relationships. It's going to happen in the context of the people that you know, the people that you love, the people that are against you. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are made for community and therefore invested in the other people around you, their well-being. We glorify God in our interactions with others and in our relationships. This is all the more important because Cain's perspective on the brotherhood of man is wrong. Am I my brother's keeper? No. And what does he do? He kills. He has the wrong understanding of his relationship to other people, which comes from a wrong understanding of his relationship to God. See, the humankind is a mess. We're a wreck. We lie, we cheat, we steal. Every institution where people are put in power abuses power. This doesn't mean that everybody in power abuses power, but every institution does. The pastorate is filled with pastors who do wrong, lie, cheat, and steal. Not all of them, but you can see it. You can find it. It's readily available. Politicians, police officers, social workers, parents, it's dark, right? It's dark. So we, as the church in particular, are uniquely equipped to embrace and to make known that we are our brother's keepers. We're supposed to be looking out for one another's good. 
because it stands in stark contrast to everything else the world is tending to show us. Let me quote another poet. His name is Lemmy Kilmeister. Motorhead. All right, so listen. Motorhead wrote this song in the 80s called The Brotherhood of Man. Here's, a, here's I think, an accurate depiction of what we see in the world. Not the way things should be, but the way things are. Blood on all our hands, we cannot hope to wash them clean. History is mystery, do you know what it means? Slaughter, kill, and fighting still, and murdered where we stand. Our legacy is lunacy, the brotherhood of man. We are worse than animals. We hunger for the kill. We put our faith in maniacs, the triumph of the will. We kill for money, wealth, and lust. For this, we should be damned. We are disease upon the world. Brotherhood of man, that's, he's speaking some truth. Even understands, like, wow, for this we should be damned. That's the condition of the world. So when Cain is like, I'm not my brother's keeper, it's, it's such a horrifying preface to what he does because what he does has been repeated throughout the centuries in every culture. We are created for community, to help one another, to serve one another, to... to, and to to be the keepers of one another in such a way that we can actually flourish. So yes, you are your brother's keeper. Let me tell you exactly what that means. To be your brother's keeper, to be your sister's keeper, it simply means that you care. You care about others, the other people around you. You are invested. To be your brother's or your sister's keeper means you understand and embrace your connection to other people through the image of God. It means you understand your calling to be a good neighbor. We get confused over what it means to be a good neighbor. Being a good neighbor, sure, yes, it means being polite, sure, sure. Yes, it means minding your business, letting your dog in so it's not barking for an hour outside when I'm trying to enjoy something on the back porch and I just hear it bark, it's, yeah, okay. Being a good neighbor means demonstrating love for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seek their good, seek their flourishing, seek their benefit. Can you serve them? Can you sacrifice for them? Can you show them God? Can you show them Jesus? And being... A keeper of your brother or sister makes the most sense in the church where we are actually called brothers and sisters. Those are the, that's, that's the names that we have in the church. That's how we relate to each other now. Brothers and sisters, we are a, a family. And for all this talk about how important it is for us to embrace the idea that we are keepers of one another, just know you need brothers and sisters, to keep watch over you. You need it. I know. I know some of you are like, nah, I just, I'm independent, do my own thing, don't really want any help. I know, because I, I, I think that way too. I prefer to be left alone. I like to be by myself, isolated, right? Just leave. I will, that's just how I'm wired. Not good, not healthy, but that's the way it is. And what, what that does is when we start to operate that way, like I don't need anything, which by the way, dummy, you do, okay? You need help. To say that you don't need help is arrogant and ignorant at the same time. You're made in such a way that you require the assistance, the encouragement, the help, the edification of brothers and sisters, particularly within the church. So we're wrong when we think that way. But if you do start to think that way, like, I don't need help, what does that do? It impacts the way we relate to other people. 
Because if I see a guy that looks like me, it's like, I'm like, well, oh, he, it looks like he needs some help. You know what? He's fine. Because I wouldn't ask for help. I wouldn't ask for help because so, I would just deal with it on my own. So I'm not going to ask for help. I'm wrong for not asking for help. Now I'm looking at him and I'm not loving him. I'm not keeping him. The, the truth is, is we all fail at this. Everybody fails. Some of you are so hospitable. You're so loving. I see such good examples of this in our church, but still, nevertheless, we all do fail. You see, we are all infected with the same disease that Cain experienced. We have this temptation to be selective in who we love, easily dismissive of people that we don't want to keep. And as we do this, we wind up ignoring God. We fail like Cain. You don't murder. I know you don't murder. That's fine. But we're still guilty. This is why we need a savior. Savior who is a true brother. Listen, I know that we talk about Jesus as, you know, creator and sustainer. It's true. He is omnipotent, eternal, and unchangeable. This is true. He is the Lord, the King of kings. This is true. But he is also our brother. He was made our brother in the incarnation when the Son of God took on human flesh. When the hypostatic union, the, the, the union of a divine nature and a human nature in one person, without any mixture of them, Christ became our brother. In that, he became one of us in order to what? Keep us. It says in Hebrews that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. In Hebrews 2.17, we read it for the Lord's Supper. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is the perfect, the good brother that we need. He's the opposite of Cain. See, he sees, Cain saw a righteous man, hated him, and murdered him. Jesus, the righteous brother, sees sinful man and saves us, serves us, cleanses us. And then he shows us the way. He shows us the way. He, he, he doesn't just save us and clean us. He goes, now, he says, now, I want you to follow me. I want you to live like me. I want you to love like me. Look at John 15. Verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Yes, um, we're, am I my brother's keeper? It's a good question. It's an important question because it has to do with so much. It has to do with who our maker is and who we are as God's creatures. It has to do with how we relate to one another and whether or not we are intrinsically linked. It has to do with what our responsibilities are in this earth that transcend culture. We are our brother's keeper. We are the keepers of one another. And though we have failed to do this and we have contributed to a 
a, a, a very selective and abusive kind of brotherhood in the world. We are constantly being shown what is possible, what is right, what is ideal in the kingdom of God. It is altogether different. It is marked by genuine love and affection, forgiveness, sacrifice, and restoration. Yes, we need to keep watch over each other and help each other. And this is possible because Jesus, the perfect brother, laid down his life that we might live. He died so that even though death touches us all, it never ultimately wins. We have forgiveness, eternal life, and the way of life in which we care for each other. Let me commend you, Redeemer. We've been working at this for 15 years, not just to be accurate in our theology, which we want to be, but to live out what God calls us to live out. And I have seen in you a genuine love for each other, a care, a concern, a compassion, a meeting of needs. I've seen it over and over again. You've seen it too. I praise God for what he has been doing in you. I need it. You need it. Other people need it. My prayer is that as we continue to grow in wisdom and in number, that that would only intensify that we would be the light shining on a hill for the world to see so that when they hear our message of Christ, it is complemented by the way we love and serve and care for each other and even our neighbors. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us more than anything we've been able to cover in our short time today. We pray that you would change us that you would work in our hearts to be not just people who love and adore you, but, and not just people who love and adore each other in the church, but that we would be people who love our neighbors. That we would resist the, the, the temptation of Cain and embrace the way of our Savior. In his name, amen.